0: This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event, held on the National Mall Saturday, September 27th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend the festival in person, you can still participate online. Podcast interviews with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my honor to talk with a, uh, a very familiar voice, I think, to millions of people. He is a broadcast news legend, Bob Schieffer. Mr. Schieffer joined CBS in 1969, where he anchored the Saturday edition of CBS Evening News for 23 years. He served as the network's chief Washington correspondent since 1982 and currently anchors Face the Nation. Among Mr. Schieffer's many honors are uh, six Emmy Awards and two Sigma Delta Chi Awards. The National Press Foundation named him Broadcaster of the Year in 2002, and he's also a member of the Broadcasting Cable Hall of Fame in april he was also named a living legend by the library of congress his latest of four books is bob schieffer's america a collection of personal essays from his long-standing broadcast news career which hits stores this september mr schieffer it's a pleasure
1: well, thank you. It's, uh, I always like to uh, come to the Library of Congress. It's a place I used to go before uh, they honored me and uh, before I spoke at the National Book Festival, which is also uh, something that's, uh, among other things, just a lot of fun to do.
0: Well, we, uh, we appreciate your time. And, and why do you like to do the National Book Festival?
1: Well, uh, it's almost like going to a county fair. There is such a, a, a festive air about it. I mean, you have these, you know, thousands of people out on the uh, out on the mall uh and people who are interested in books and you can just wander from tent to tent. Uh, you can in one tent you'll hear your favorite mystery writer talking about uh, her latest uh, uh, book, uh, her latest mystery. You'll go to another place and you might find David McCullough talking about his latest historical work. It's uh, if you like books, this is sort of like going to the All Star Game. Uh, they they're all there, and uh, you can hear them, see them, uh, even touch them, and so. Uh, uh, not just as an author, but as a reader, I, I really like to take part. It's a wonderful idea.
0: I assume that uh, folks will be hearing from you about your latest book?
1: Yeah. Uh, the latest book uh, is uh, a collection of the commentaries that I've been writing over the years uh, uh, for the in uh, pieces on Face the Nation. Uh, it's a little different than the uh, books I've written in the past. And uh, the interesting part for me was going back and going through uh, all of these various commentaries that I've been writing since about 1995, I'll tell you one of the, the sobering parts of it is when you go back and look at your uh, work over uh, uh, a long period of time like that, uh, you discover that it does not all stand the test <laughs> of time. Some of it <laughs> lasted for about a week. But we picked out there were about 700 of them uh, in all, and wow. we uh, winnowed that down to hundred uh Uh, 171. I I put in the book to, uh, we narrowed it down to about 171, and the reason I said that was kind of a little inside joke. I wrote one little commentary on the uh all the good things about a grilled cheese sandwich. And I said, that's just about a half a commentary. So we have about 171 in there, 169 and a
0: half. Really. Don't underestimate the power of a good grilled cheese. <laughs> exactly. Are there any uh, commentaries or, or uh, anything that really stands out that you're particularly proud of or particularly memorable?
1: Well, uh, I think the ones uh, that I wrote about uh, politics, uh, politics is my life. That's what I've spent most of my uh life doing is covering politics and so uh I have some in there that are my uh, that are my personal favorites um I have one on the, the joys of voting uh you know some people some journalists don't vote they think they can't remain uh nonpartisan uh, uh by voting but I love to vote hmm. i i think it's uh, our duty as a citizen to vote and as my mother always said uh go vote. It makes you feel big and strong. And I I wrote one of my commentaries uh, about that. But I have to say, overall, the ones that uh, I kind of got the biggest kick out of, and and I enjoyed seeing them in print, because somehow I thought they worked in print as well as they did on the air. Uh, The ones that I did about holidays and the ones I wrote at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Mother's Day or Father's Day. Uh, uh, One commentary, for example, on Father's Day, I I point out that more telephone calls uh, are made on Mother's Day than any other day of the year. Mm. But more collect calls are made on Father's Day. (laughs) Or they used to be more collect calls before we got into the the cell phone era. And I think that just sort of... (laughs) Commentary in itself on 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 old dad's role yeah. <laughs> in the family. Yeah. We're there to pick up the check.
0: Well, now for folks who aren't familiar, uh, walk us back a little bit and, and talk about uh, how you got to where you are today in your career.
1: Uh, mostly by accident, I think would be the but <clears throat> be the one sentence to sum it up. I always wanted to be a reporter. When I was a little boy, I was the uh, I, I used to you know write news stories. Uh, When I got to high school, I was the uh, editor of the high school annual. I was the sports editor of the newspaper. Uh, Same thing uh, uh, in college. Uh, My mom uh, had the idea that I ought to be a doctor. So I spent the first two years of uh, my college uh, in pre-med. It hated me. I hated it. And the summer of my sophomore year, I said, this is it. Uh, I got a job working in the news department with a little radio station. Uh, switched my major to journalism. And uh, that summer, I got uh, at that job, I was paid a dollar an hour, uh, worked 44 hours a week for the last two years that I was uh, in college. But from that summer on, uh, I had gotten a weekly paycheck for for being a reporter. And that's something I'm kind of proud of. I'm I'm in my 51st year now Mm. uh, uh, of getting paid to do something that Uh, if the secret to be told, I probably would have done for nothing uh, if I couldn't have found a way to get paid for doing it.
0: Now, early on when you were in Fort Worth, uh, you covered uh, the assassination of President Kennedy. How did that uh, change both you as a person and also your career?
1: Well, it was one of the most unusual things, and I'm not sure that I've covered a story since that was uh, kind of as unusual as that was. In those days, Uh, After college and after uh, three years in the Air Force uh, where I've edited a series of military publications, I went to work for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and I was the night police reporter. Uh, The day that Kennedy was shot, uh, I uh, had rushed into the office uh, just to try to help answer the phones. I worked on the night shift. And I picked up a telephone on the city desk, and a woman said, is there anybody who can give me a ride to Dallas? And I said, well, lady, we don't uh, run a taxi service here And besides the president's been shot. She said, well, uh, I heard it on the radio. I think my son is the one that they've arrested. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. Mm. Uh, I immediately dropped that business about we don't run a taxi service. <laughs> I asked her what her address was, told her I'd be out to get her. Another reporter and I went out. The reason I got another reporter to go with me, I had a Triumph sports car in those days, and I couldn't imagine taking this woman to Dallas, which was about you know about an hour drive. It's about 35 miles away. Uh, in that Triumph, uh, the, I had the top down. It took about 20 minutes to put the top up anyway. Well, I just didn't do that. So the guy who was the auto editor of the paper was named Bill Foster, and the local car dealers would give him a car to drive every week, and then on Sundays he'd ride a, write a review of it, and uh, they were generally pretty good reviews, free car, free gas for a week. You can can see the mores, (laughs) the (laughs) ethics of journalism has sort of changed since then. But anyway, he was driving a Cadillac that week, so I got him, and uh, we went out in that uh, Cadillac sedan, uh, picked her up. She was standing on uh, the curb at the address she had given me, and uh, I got in the back seat with her, and he drove, and we actually drove her to Dallas. And on the way over there, she gave me an interview. She was uh, really a deranged person, to be quite honest about yeah. it. And uh, uh, she, uh, you know, we began to complain, even on that riot, that uh, that uh, her the, Oswald's wife, would people would feel sorry for her, but they wouldn't feel sorry for her, and she'd starve to death. I mean, it was just bizarre. But huh. anyway, once we got to the police station, we were there, and uh, I, in those days, we never told people who we were. They asked. We didn't lie, but if they thought we were detectives, we let them think that. So, uh, I always wore a snap brim hat, so I'd look like Dick Tracy. So, when when I walked in the Dallas uh, Police Station, I just went up to the first uniform policeman and said, uh, "I'm the one that brought uh, Oswald's mother over here. Is there some place we can put her where these reporters won't bother her?" And uh, this burr man said, "Well, sure." And he he took me back to the burglary squad, and uh, there was a little office there, and he said, "Will this be okay?" And I said, "Sure." And uh, the good news was there was a phone in there. Now, in those days, being able to find a phone was one of your most important jobs as a reporter. We didn't have the cell phones, So I would go out in the hallway where all the other reporters were, gather up information, and then go back in and use that phone to call back to the uh, my newspaper, the Star-Telegram, because we were putting out extras. As night fell. uh She asked, could she see her son? And I said, well, let's find out. So I went to the chief of homicide, uh, asked him, and he said, well, I suppose we ought to do that. He took us all into a holding room, just myself, Oswald's mother, and by this time his wife had shown up. And I'm standing there thinking, I'm going to get the biggest story of my life. I'm going to bring this guy down. I'll hear whatever he says to his mother. Maybe I can interview him. And finally, a guy in the corner said, who are you? And I said, well, who are you? And he said, are you a newspaper man? And I said, well, uh, uh, aren't you? And he said, listen, son, he said, "Uh, you better get out of here. Because he said, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And I think he, about halfway minute, turned out he was an FBI agent Mm. simply doing his job. He was the first person I'd been in the police station at least six hours who had asked me who I was. And the story ends there. It's the biggest story I almost got and didn't. But it just shows you the difference in, in you know, the access that we used to have in those days. Uh, if you look like you belong somewhere, you could generally good, get in. Nobody had identification or press passes, any of that kind of stuff. Uh but, you know, when I look back on it, I think, you know, how in the world did that happen? But but it really did. Well, after that, uh, you know, I went back to the uh, police beat for a while. And then uh, uh, mainly, and I guess a lot of the reason that they chose me, uh, I convinced the newspaper to send me to Vietnam uh, after that. The war was just heating up. And uh, so I reported from Vietnam It uh, then came back to Fort Worth and— uh, in 1966, and uh, went out to a local uh, television station that invited me out to talk about the war. And uh, I did. And afterward, they offered me a job. And it was uh, $20 a week more than I made at the newspaper. So I took it. I really needed the money. So that's how I got into TV. And from there, of course, that led to CBS and where I've been ever since. But uh I was one of those reporters that uh, I basically got into TV for the money. I needed the money. <laughs> $20 seemed like a lot of money to me, so that's, uh, that's sort of how uh, I got from there to here.
0: I suppose apart from the obvious, uh, over those past 50 years, how, how has uh, journalism evolved and changed? What, what have been your own personal observations about the field?
1: Up until that weekend of the Kennedy assassination, most Americans depended on print, on newspapers for their news. From that weekend on, after the entire nation had focused on that one awful news story, the the death of this young president, from that uh, weekend on, most people depended on television uh, to get their news. Now, Now we see that is changing. Uh, You had these great technological breakthroughs. Uh, There's no telling where people get their news. We know a lot of people get it off the web. Mm. Uh, We've had the development of cable television. The thing that has changed it more than any other thing is the web because Mm -hmm. this is the first conveyor of news on a national and international scale that has no editor. Even Mm. the worst newspaper has an editor. The, the editor of the worst newspaper knows where the information in his newspaper comes from. Maybe he made it up, but he knows that you don 't know where information comes from that uh, pops up on the web. It may be true, it may be false, but we know this: it it travels at lightning speed. We spent most of our time at CBS on 9 eleven simply correcting incorrect information that had popped up on the web somewhere. Mm. Uh, you know, normally up until that time in journalism, if you made a mistake, you felt it was your responsibility to correct it. If your competitor made one, you generally ignored it and and waited for them to correct it. We couldn't we couldn't wait on nine eleven. I mean, if we had not corrected this stuff, uh, we might have you know they might have it might have set off mass hysteria, panic in the streets. And so, we spent most of our time doing that, and and that's what we're all dealing with now in journalism. Politicians. People running for public office, people in government, and those of us who are covering politics and covering politicians and covering everything else, is this uh, the way that this information just pops up out of nowhere? Uh, suddenly everybody knows about it. If it turns out to be false, uh, if you don't get it corrected in the first 30 seconds, it's part of the lore. It becomes part of your uh, file, it becomes part of your. Uh, you know, biography on, on Wikipedia, as mm. it were. So that's what's changed, and that's, you know, there are no deadlines anymore. And, and we're having a whole new definition now of privacy, a whole new definition of what libel is, a whole new definition of what uh, a copyright is. All of that has changed, and it's changed with the coming of these, this new technology that's brought us the web.
0: To me, even with a bit of a shorter-term view, perhaps, than you have, it's, it's astounding to see how it's changing news and changing political campaigns and so mm-hmm. forth. Do you think it's a net positive or, or uh, a negative?
1: You know, I, I suppose uh, we can never have too much information. But uh, the question is, is uh, are we getting accurate information? Uh, do we have time for reflection? You know, we we sort of it's we have a gut reaction with somebody when something happens uh, to go out and and we question the first person that we can find who has something to say. Well, generally, the first person who has something to say hasn't thought it out. Uh, What he has to say doesn't amount to very much. Uh, But it is it is just put new pressure on all of us. I think on the whole, uh, we're better off with more information than less information. But it's made it all a lot more uh, complicated.
0: Now, as someone who depends on journalists to help get out uh, messages, I I have to say that some of the changes that are going on in the news business are a bit alarming, and I think, uh, frankly, might be alarming to a lot of of people. Um, First, I would ask, do you see a resolution or an answer to that. I mean, are there business models that can change or evolve in order to deal with that? I think n- nobody uh, could could see a positive coming out of journalism going away and becoming this sort of unfettered, you know, Wild West uh, on the web like you were talking about. No,
1: you can't have a democracy unless citizens can uh, base uh, their decisions, what they do as citizens, who they vote for, uh, the part they take in their communities. You can't have that uh, as we know it without accurate information and access to information and, and, and a free uh, and un, unfettered uh, press. Uh, you just it just doesn't work without that, and and that's the part that uh, that really bothers you. Are people getting the right story? Are they getting uh, accurate information? You know, one of the things, and I think one of the reasons we may have. Uh, one reason for the partisanship uh, that we have now is you can sort of order up your news in any style you want. it. If you want it from a conservative point of view, you can get it from that. If you want it from a liberal part of view point of view, you can get it from somebody on that side. Uh, but I think more and more people are finding they, they're having to get their news from multiple sources. I mean, I think one of the main uh, responsibilities of the mainstream media, as it were, is we need to be the place where people can at least agree on the facts. There must always be a place where the information that is given, people can can rely on uh, that and, and feel that it that it's accurate. And that's what we have to do. The uh, so much of the uh, of the problem for journalists today is is finding the sources of revenue uh, to maintain these uh, very expensive enterprises like newspapers. Uh, we need newspapers. Uh, I, I don't know how we would operate in this country if we if we didn't have newspapers. And yet, more and more, we're seeing these newspapers—they're becoming so expensive to operate that people can't uh, can't uh, make, make a profit uh, doing it. And, and that's the problem for newspapers. It's not so much the problems of journalism; it's the problems of finding the money to finance these very expensive institutions. I mean. The editor of the New York Times, Bill Keller, told me that that his newspaper spends more than $2 million a year just for security costs to maintain their bureau in Baghdad. Mm. Now, you're not going to find a blocker that has $2 million to spend on protecting himself while he goes to uh, Baghdad uh, to report what's going on there. Uh, This is very expensive stuff, and how do newspapers – find the advertisers uh, that will make it profitable for them to, to keep operating. And that's the problem that they're all facing now. Uh, we face uh, similar problems in in broadcasting, not, not as severe as the newspapers. But uh, we're gonna have to figure out some way that we can have, uh, we'll always have uh, printed sources of information, it seems to me. You know, one of the reasons we need newspapers is, uh, if you go on the web, you're, you're generally looking for something. You're searching for something. You're looking for a specific story uh, to check out uh, information on a specific thing. You pick up a newspaper, uh, and you're going to get a lot of information that you didn't ask for. And you're going to find uh, valuable uh, information that you weren't particularly looking for uh, as you're reading through the newspaper to find the story that uh, that you picked up the paper to, to find out about. And, and I think that's, that's where newspapers have it over, over the, uh, the web at this particular time. How this is all going to evolve, how it's going to finally break out, nobody really knows
0: right, right now. Now, you, uh, you've covered just about every possible beat in Washington, from the White House to Congress and the Pentagon and, and the State Department. And, and as far as I know, you're the only person who's done that, or at least at, at your level. Uh, which of those did you enjoy most, and, and for any particular reason?
1: Well, I think Capitol Hill. uh, To me, the United States Capitol is what Washington is all about. Uh, The White House seems to be a very glamorous place, and, uh, you know, it's always been the glamour beat uh, because, uh, you know, the president is obviously the most uh, uh, powerful person in in the world. Uh, But to me, uh, the Capitol is where it all really happens. And seeing all those politicians uh, of every stripe. Uh, I said one time that I thought the uh, the U.S. Capitol was sort of our national zoo. You have one example of every kind of American uh, down there uh, at the Capitol. When you the president comes up there to address a joint session, you'll find out on the floor of the House of Representatives smart people, not-so-smart people, tall people, short people, black ones, white ones, uh, every kind of American is, is represented out there. And, and getting to see them all together uh, helps us to understand what a diverse country it is. From a, uh, a recorder's standpoint, the great thing about covering the Congress is they're all independent contractors. Uh, and when you cover the president, Everybody at the White House works for the same guy. They work for the president. And so unless you find some you know, disgruntled person or somebody who takes a different point of view, uh, you're going to get pretty much the same story no matter who you talk to. Uh, you go up to the Capitol, and you'll find people on every side of an issue. And uh, that's how you find stories. Uh, I also enjoyed very much covering the Pentagon, which to me is like, a, like a, just a giant courthouse. Uh, one of the things I found when I was a courthouse reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram is best stories about the sheriff came from the county commissioners. Best stories about the county commissioners came from the sheriff because you had two separate elected officials that were all competing for the same tax dollar mm. uh, for their budget. You go out to the Pentagon, it's just the same. The best stories about the Air Force come from the Navy. The best stories about the Navy come from the Air Force. Uh, if you want to find out uh, What's good about land, you know, what's good about uh, naval air, uh, you can go talk to the Navy and they'll tell you about it. But uh, if you want to find out how much it really costs to put an aircraft carrier out there uh, in the ocean, you go to the Air Force. They can tell you exactly how much it costs. On the other hand, if you want to find out about uh, the vulnerability of land-based air forces, go talk to the Navy. They've got all the stats on that. So uh, when, when two separate entities are competing for the same tax dollar, that's when you find proof. It's also where you find news.
0: Now, you talked about our National Zoo, and I think you've covered politics longer and more intensely than just about anyone today. What's your assessment of the state of American politics? It seems to me like every few years, people like to say, oh, it's never been more partisan than this. The system has never been more broken. Give us the benefit of, of the long view.
1: Well, it probably has been more partisan at sometimes in, uh, in our history. I mean, you know, when we were voting on the Constitution and deciding... Uh, what to do about that it was it was much nastier than anything uh, we talk about today but i do think uh that in modern times we are going through a very very partisan time and i think we do have some things in our system that need to be repaired uh is it broken Yeah. yeah can it be repaired i think it can uh the way we elect officials, I think right now, and the fact that money has become such a big part of the process, I think, is where we start to start to do the repair uh, when we went to the primary systems, when we stopped uh, you know electing delegates uh, to the national conventions, uh, political conventions at the precinct level, then the county level, then the state level, then they all went to a national convention where they actually chose the delegates. Uh, it was frankly just cheaper than going to the primary system. We we turned retail politics into wholesale politics, and these enormous cottage industries have grown up around our politics now, the consultants, the pollsters, all that stuff, and and the growing use of computers. We need to reform that. Uh, we also need to reform the way we draw the district lines for members of mm. Congress, uh, and I think we're going to have to eventually do with that what we have done with the uh, the uh, way we go about closing military bases. You know, we have now put that in the hands of an independent panel mm-hmm. uh, who are appointed by the Congress. But what they do is they listen to the military. Uh, they take testimony from the local communities. And then they present a plan uh, every year to the Congress. Uh, and And the Congress has to vote on it up or down on which bases to close and which bases to to which bases to keep open, but they have to vote on all of them at once. They can't vote on individual bases. What was happening was the Congressman whose district in one base would say to the Congressman who has the district. Uh, 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 who has a military base in his district, you know, you vote to keep mine open, I'll vote to keep yours open. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't get anything. They couldn't close any of these bases, no matter whether they were of any use to the military or not. I think we're going to have to have an independent panel uh, appointed by the Congress that will draw up the congressional district lines. Uh, They will vote on them each year that they uh, have a, uh, a census and And they will vote on all of them up or down, and uh, maybe we can get back to some semblance of order, because hmm. what we 're doing now is we're just we've created an incumbent protectionist society. Uh, they all take care of each other. Uh, the Democrat is happy to give any Republicans in his district to the Republican in the next district. So he doesn't have them in his district, and they won't vote against him. And the Republican over there is happy to give the congressman in the adjoining district, who's a Democrat, all the Democrats in his district, uh, so they won't vote against him. And and the result is, uh, once these people get into office, it's very, very difficult to get rid of them. I I think those are two of the things that uh, we simply have to do uh, to get this thing back on track, because what's happening now— is you're finding politicians who must sign off with so many special interest groups in order to get the money to run for Congress that once they get here to Washington, they can't compromise on anything. And when a legislative body loses its ability to compromise, you can't get anything done. So Hmm. the recent Congresses uh, that we've seen, uh, they nibble around the edges of these issues. They vote on abortion a lot. They vote on flag burning a lot. They vote on things like that. Uh, They vote on gun control a lot, but they never are able to directly take on major issues head on and get anything done because they can't compromise.
0: Now you're, of course, uniquely positioned, I think, to uh, play a very important role in in, uh, the political campaign, particularly this year, in that you're going to be moderating the uh, final presidential debate of 2008. And of course, you've moderated past debates. Talk a little bit about your approach to that role. What kind of preparation goes into it? How do you choose questions, even?
1: Well, we're going to uh, do it much differently this year. And I think it's going to be a much better debate. We'll actually have follow-up questions this time from the candidates themselves. We're going to divide uh, each of these debates. Uh, we were I was going to do foreign policy as the last debate because the uh, issues uh, with Russia and so forth have uh, come right to the front. They've decided now they want to move that to the first debate, so I'll be doing uh, uh, domestic issues. But what we're going to do is we're going to divide each uh, debate into eight 10-minute segments uh you know uh, each addressing a different subject, and then I will pose a question and try to get the two candidates uh, to engage on that and in other words, I might say, you know we've got four dollar a gallon gasoline here uh what are you going to do about that Senator McCain and then he'll give his answer, and then i'll say well senator obama what's your how do you come back on that I'll try to get them." to engage, uh, directly on it. Uh, the, the job that I will have to uh, do before we get to that debate is decide what are the eight domestic issues that I I consider most important. That'll be my job to draw that up. Mm. Obviously I'm going to have to get myself briefed up on what's, what's the latest, uh, where is social security right now? Uh, you know, uh, what is the latest uh, on uh, drilling offshore or not? I'll have to familiarize myself with uh, the two candidates' positions. But what we're trying to do this year, and we've never been able to do it in the past, but this year we've, we've gotten uh, both campaigns to agree, uh, is, uh, you know, if I, I would consider it a great success if I just posed one question and then for 10 minutes the two of them went at it uh, on that you know, what are you gonna do about the housing market? And uh you know, my job will be if 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 they don't come up with good follow ups uh, or uh you know don't don't hit the pertinent points I I'll I'll interject myself into it. But the uh the idea here is to make this as much as we can about the candidates uh and and not about the moderators. Uh, that may be why they've chosen uh Three, three fellows who have been around for a while here. That uh, Tom Brokaw, me, uh, Jim Lehrer. Uh, we don't have anything to prove, <laughs> you know? so we can uh, we can make sure the spotlight uh, stays on uh, stays on the candidates. That's where it should be.
0: Well, Bob Schieffer, I could go on in this vein all day, but I know you're a busy person. But before we let you go, uh, what's coming next for you, uh, either um, perhaps uh, additional books into the future? And I'd also like to ask, can we look forward to seeing you at uh, CBS for uh, a while to come?
1: You know, uh, I have uh, signed a new contract with CBS, and and this is going to be the only place I'll, I'll ever work from here on in. Uh, I I was thinking of retiring last year, and then they said, well, don't you want to be around for this election? And I thought, well, yeah, probably I do. And then I was going to retire after the inauguration, uh, and I'm not. Uh, I'm sort of unretired. I'm going to continue to face the nation until we uh, come up with someone to replace me. Uh, uh, That uh, question is wide open right now, but obviously I can't uh, do this forever. But sometime over the next couple of years, I think – We'll find uh, a new moderator for Face the Nation, and I'll help in the transition uh, on that. And then after that, I will still work at CBS, but uh, with no specific duties. I'll just be around, uh, if there are big events, major events, uh, I'll be around to uh, help out on that any way I can, uh, in much the way that Tom Brokaw, uh, the role that he now has at uh at NBC, uh, I told him that uh, he was going to be my guide for the golden years, as it were. And maybe I'll write another book or, uh, down the line, but we'll just sort of see how it goes. I, I'm, I'm feeling good, and as long as my health uh, holds out, I, I intend to be involved around here in some way or the other.
0: Well, you have a lot of uh, admirers and fans, and that's uh, all obviously very good news for them. Uh, Bob Schieffer, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us today.
1: Well, it was a real pleasure.
0: And we are excited to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That is Saturday, September 27th on the National Mall here in Washington, D.C., from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. If you'd like more details, as well as a complete list of participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you for listening.